Listen, I want to start tonight by telling you guys a story. It's a story about me when I was in high school playing football. Now, I know when we get older, it's not becoming to tell stories from our youth. Like, I mean, I should get over it. I should grow up. I should quit telling these stories. When you get, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I am much too old to be telling high school football stories. I am in my mid-30s now. And <laughs> there's no reason for me to still be living in the past. But I have to tell you this story. My senior year in high school, we were playing one night in the Dallas area, we were playing a team called McKinney, McKinney High School, the McKinney Lions, and they had a really, really good team. Well, I played on the defensive side of the ball, and I was the uh, linebacker, and so my job was, before every play, I would look to our defensive coordinator, and he would signal in what kind of defense I was supposed to call in the huddle, and that's how we ran the defense. Well, if you know anything about football, high school, college, or professional, you know that there are, the head coach is on the sidelines, a lot of assistant coaches are on the sidelines, and they have headphones on, and they are communicating to other coaches who are up in the press box who, from that vantage point, can see the field more clearly. They can see, hey, there's an opening on the left side, this cornerback here, he's, he's not good, or this guy's not making his block. And so they're all through the game, they're communicating. And based on these communications... The offensive plays are called and the defensive plays are called. Well, about midway through this game that we were in with McKinney, a timeout was called, and so the defense went to the sideline, and our defensive coordinator gathered us around. He said, fellas, this has great, got great news. He said, we are able to pick up the McKinney's. We can hear their coaches on our headphones. We can hear what they're called. We can hear the play that they're going to call before they call it. And so the coach says to me, because I was the one that got the signals, he said, John, for the rest of the night, for as long as this happens, I'm not going to be signaling to you that we're running, you know, strong wildcat or bullets or all these different plays we had. He said, you just look to me, and I'm going to tell you the play that they're about to run. You get in the huddle, tell the team, and then you can go stop them. You know the play. I said, man, this is unbelievable. Is God smiling on us or what? We know the play before they run it. And so it's sure enough. I looked to the sideline. He said, they're going to run a sweep to the right. I get in the sweep to the right. We all know they're going that way. And so they would run the play. And then the next, I would look over, and he would say, it's going to be a, it's going to be a trap right up the middle. So I get in the huddle. They run the ball right up the middle. We have to stop it. This went on for, I mean, for the better part of the whole game from that point on. It was incredible that we knew the plays. That was the good news. The bad news was, even though we knew the plays, we couldn't stop them. I mean, we were at the line of scrimmage. And you know when you're 17, 18 years old and you've got that testosterone going, you think you're the baddest thing, you know. And so they would come up to the line of scrimmage and we would try to intimidate them. We said, we know it's going to be a sweep to the right. We were saying that. And boy, those running backs' eyes would get big. Like, How do they know the play? We knew the play, but we couldn't stop it. They were like, yeah, you know what the play is. Now watch us run right over you. And that's what they did to our peril, and they won the game. But the point I'm making is, we knew the plays, and we still couldn't stop them. Now, in the spiritual realm, the same thing is happening. The devil, our enemy, has some plays. And he just keeps running the same plays over and over and over and over again. And yet, even though we know the plays... So many times we can't stop him. I mean, we know what he's going to do. Many times we know what he is doing. 
and yet we are unable to stop the devil. And so I want, what I want to do in this message is to show you some of the devil's favorite plays. But it's not enough just to show you the plays because you already know the plays. In fact, when I start showing you these plays, you're going to be sitting there thinking, yep, he's right. That's one of them. If I were preaching tonight, I would have said the same thing. If I were teaching a class, I would have put that on the devil's list of favorite plays. But I'm not going to just show you the plays tonight. I want us to see how to stop the plays so that we can have victory over the devil. Now, I hope you have your Bibles with you because in this message, I want us to look at a lot of different verses. If you have your Bible, just hold it in the air so I can see how many are out there. That's a lot of Bibles. If you don't have one, it's okay. Sometimes I come in here. A lot of times on Sunday, I forget. I don't bring my Bible in here and I have to borrow one. But we have them in the pew rack right there in front of you. And so, the first verse I want us to look up is in 1 Peter chapter number 5, and this is a verse that will be familiar to many of you, but I want to make sure that you have it marked. 1 Peter chapter 5, we wouldn't want to start a message about the devil without looking at this verse. 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse number 8, and here's what it says, be sober, be vigilant, that literally means be watchful, be spiritually alert. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we read in this verse that in the Christian life, we have an enemy. We have an adversary. Wouldn't it be great if there was no devil? Wouldn't it be wonderful if he wasn't out there trying to mess everything up? But he's there, and his goal is to try to mess our lives up, to destroy us, to cause us to lose our witness for Christ, to steal our joy, to steal our peace, and to make our lives as miserable as possible. So he's going about, he's our adversary, he's the opponent, he's the enemy, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, what are some of his favorite plays? Well, let me mention some of them tonight. First, and I believe this, we would all agree that his number one play, the number, if we could just steal the devil's playbook, play number one is temptation. Temptation. This was the first play that the devil ever used on anybody, and he used it on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So go back to Genesis chapter 3, and let's refamiliarize ourselves a little bit with this story. Because we see the devil running. This was his very first play, temptation. Tempting the first man and the first woman to sin against God, to do something God told them not to do, to do something deep down in their hearts they knew was wrong, and yet the devil uh, let this be the first play that he ran. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees, trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now, see, the serpent started out, the devil, asking a question. Now he's contradicting God. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they were aware that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam, his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And later on we read, the reason they hid themselves is because they were afraid of God. They had done something God told them not to do. They had done something they knew was wrong. And the moment they did it, their fellowship with God was broken, and they were afraid of God. But this is always the devil's first play. I don't care if you have been saved 50 years. I don't care if you got saved last Sunday. I don't care if you've not been saved yet. The devil, his first trick is to get you to do something that God has commanded you not to do. Temptation. Now, that's the play. And all of us here have experienced it, and we do experience it. I mean, temptation is not just something we experienced when we were in high school or college. Temptation is something we experience all through our lives. And the devil knows if he can get us to do something that God has forbidden, that he will do the same thing to us he did to Adam and Eve. He will drive a wedge between us and God. The closeness that we once enjoyed with God will be broken. We would not lose our salvation, and we don't lose our salvation, but we lose that closeness with God. Now, temptation comes in lots of different shapes and lots of different sizes. We always think about sexual temptation, and maybe that's the most prominent, or maybe that's the one that most people are familiar with. But the temptation here in the garden had, in, had nothing to do with immorality. It was a temptation. What the devil was saying to Adam and Eve was, if you go God's way, you're going to miss out on something that would be good for you. You're going to miss out on something that would be enjoyable for you. And that's always what, that, that's the nature of temptation. You need, to, it's like the devil will dangle a carrot and say, if you don't bite, if you don't take this carrot, you're missing something. That's why the scripture said that when Eve saw that fruit and she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, in other words, she wanted to eat the fruit. She wanted that which God said you can't have. And the devil said to her, the only reason God is telling you you can't have it is because God knows if you eat that fruit that you'll be as smart as God. You'll know as much as he does. So the, the trick behind the temptation is if you don't partake of this, you're not going to experience life at its fullest. And so sometimes we look at a particular temptation. We look at a situation. We know what God says, no question about it. And yet in our hearts, we're thinking, but I don't want to do without that. I wouldn't want to miss out on this opportunity or this pleasure or this whatever, this venture, this money, this relationship, whatever it might be. If it violates God's word, it is wrong. And so what the devil wants to do is to convince us that something God says is bad for us is actually good for us. So that's the temptation. Now, here's the question. How do we respond to it? What do we do? I mean, the coach, God, is over here on the sideline, and God's saying, that's the devil tempting you to do that. This is not my plan for your life. It's not what I want you to do. It's temptation. It's of the devil. We know the play. We know it's temptation. We don't always know how to stop it. So let me give you an answer. What is the right response to temptation? Just write these two words down. 
Here's how you respond to any temptation that ever comes your way. Run away. Run away. Turn to the person next to you and say, run away. Turn to him and say, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> From that movie, Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest Gump. Okay, so let's look up some verses in the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Run. You need to just run from that temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, look in verse number 18. Clear. I mean, this is black ink on white paper. There are some passages in the Bible we read. They're not clear. We try to understand what it means. We try to interpret it. And, uh, but this passage doesn't need any interpretation. It just needs application. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. Say that with me. Flee sexual immorality. And so in, Paul here is talking about sexual temptation. And anytime we're tempted to be a part of that on any level, what we're supposed to do is just flee. Look at the rest of the verse. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so there's something about sexual sin that is different from all other kinds of sin. Paul said all other sins that you commit, they're, they're outside your body. If I lie to you, I'm using my mouth to lie, but that sin is outside of my body. If I steal, I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me, but that sin is outside of my body. If, if, if you fight somebody, that's a sin you shouldn't fight, but that sin is outside. If a child disobeys his parent, it's wrong, but that sin's outside the body. Paul says when it comes to sexual sin, it's a, it's a unique sin. Because in sexual sin, you are sinning against your own body. And he points out here that the body is the temple of God. And so God lives inside of our bodies. And so when we use our bodies to engage in sexual immorality, it is a very serious sin to God. And that's why he says in first verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Now, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just want you to mark some of these verses tonight. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and in verse number 22. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Because Paul says a very similar thing. Flee also youthful lust. So it's not just the act of sexual immorality. It's the thought. It's the desire. We're to run away from that. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he's basically saying the same thing there from a slightly different perspective. Now, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 10. We'll see another kind of temptation. Again, it's not all sexual that the Bible is addressing here. Any kind of temptation. 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money. is nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, now Paul is writing to Timothy. Here's what he says about money. Flee these things 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So he's saying, Timothy, you're a child of God. You have surrendered your life to the ministry. You've devoted your life to God's work. It is unbecoming of you to devote and to spend your mental energies, your time on pursuing money. Don't pursue money. And friend, maybe this would apply to everybody here tonight on, on one level or another. I encourage all, every one of us, I encourage myself, don't pursue money. Pursue God. There are a lot of people in life who spend an inordinate amount of time pursuing money. And it's wrong. We should pursue God and let God give us money. You know, I'm convinced of this in my own life. I'm convinced that financially, I, w- I will be, I am, I have been, I am, and by God's grace, I will be much better off pursuing God than I would be pursuing money. In other words, I actually think, and I think, the, and I know the Scripture teaches this, that you and I actually have more money and more things and more of the blessings of God if we don't pursue them. All through the Scripture, we're taught, seek the Lord. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In most every wedding I perform, I quote Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. I'm probably the only minister in the world who uses that verse in a wedding. But I always say, if I can remember to say it to the couple, if I could only give you one verse for husband and wife coming together and let this be your verse it would be Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And I follow that up by saying this. Many people spend a lifetime seeking things, money, jobs, relationships, security. Don't do it. You seek the Lord, not the thing. And so you can apply that not only to money. You can apply that to everything. I even think about, I'm talking about weddings. Even you're here tonight and you're single, you say, well, it doesn't apply to me. I'm not married. How did, let me tell you, did you know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7? If you're single, you know what you should not seek? A spouse. Paul said that. If you're single, don't seek a spouse. Isn't that interesting? You think that if you were single and you wanted to get married, there wouldn't be anything wrong with seeking a spouse. But there is. The Scripture teaches that you, don't, you seek God And whether you need a spouse or a job or money or a house or a car or a friend (laughs) or whatever you need, if you'll seek God, not only will you find God and He will meet the deepest needs in your heart, but He will then give you all the things that you would have been seeking had you not been seeking Him. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the whole deal about money and greed and things, and material possessions. It's going to be a problem for you because it's a problem for everybody. But I'm encouraging you, flee from that. And don't spend your life seeking things. Spend your life seeking the Lord. So we run away from all of that. Now, one other verse on this, pat, on this point. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You were in 1 Corinthians 6 a minute ago. But I want you to mark 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let me show you two verses there. First of all, verse number 12. And this is a verse we all need because sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, I would never commit that sin, or I would never do that, or I would never do this. Look at what it says in verse number 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Friend, there is no sin under the wrong circumstances apart from the grace of God that you and I could not 
commit. And we should never get to thinking, well, I would never do that. We might be the next one to do it. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So whatever your temptation might be, maybe I've not even mentioned the thing you're struggling with tonight. But look what it says. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make, now watch this, the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so the way of escape, you may be in a movie, and the movie gets a little bit raunchy, and they're showing things on that screen that your eyes don't have any business watching. And this verse says, God will make the way of escape. Say, where is the escape? The exit doors. I mean, you may be in a situation with a work associate, and... You're attracted to that person. They're attracted to you. The only problem is you're married to other people. And you're thinking, good night. What if, if this thing keeps going in this direction, this is not going to have a good ending. Well, the Bible says there's a way of escape. And so let this message tonight or this part of a message tonight be a warning to you and to me and to all of us that anytime we are tempted to do anything that God has forbidden us to do, the wise course of action is to run away. If you agree with that, say amen. First temptation, okay, now I'm, I'm going to make sure you stay with me all night. His, the devil's first play is, and the right response Run away. Okay, what's his second play? His second play, he is so predictable. Condemnation. Condemnation. Here's what the devil will do. He will dangle the bait in front of you to try to lure you into some particular sin, to talk you into it. And he's like, go my way and then you'll be happy. And so many times, this is what happens. He dangles the bait. We take the bait. We do that which God told us not to do. And then what does the devil do? He condemns us for doing what he enticed us to do. Now, what kind of friend is that? He's not a friend. That's why he's called the adversary or he's the enemy. Think about what I just said. The devil will, in, will entice you, will tempt you to sin and do wrong. And as soon as you do it, he will change his strategy and then start start condemning you and saying things like, well, you must not even be saved if you would have committed that act. How could you call yourself a Christian? How, why do you go to church? You're such a hypocrite. You're such a phony. And he'll condemn you and he'll condemn you and he'll condemn you. And you think, man, I feel so badly. I know what I did was wrong and now this condemnation is so bad. So that's why his second play is always condemnation. Now, what is the right response to condemnation? Remember, the right response to temptation is to run away. But we don't always run away. Sometimes we give in. So after we have given in and now we've sinned and we feel badly and we repent and we ask God to forgive us and we confess and we forsake that sin, we say, God, I'll never want to do that again. Please forgive me. And yet the devil is still condemning us, condemning us, condemning us, condemning us. What is the right response? One word. It's not run away. Not when he condemns you. When he condemns you, speak. S-P-E-A-K. You speak. You have to have an answer. You see, when the devil is coming at you and tempting you to sin, you don't need to get in a conversation with the devil. Head for the exits. But when he is condemning you 
and telling you how sorry you are and you're probably not even saved and you've lost your salvation. Of course, you know you can't lose your salvation, but he might still tell you that. Or that you were never saved to begin with. God will never be able to use you. Your life is over. Your future is doomed. All these things. You've got to have a response to that. Because if you can't say something, first of all, that satisfies your own heart and mind, and then that silences the devil, he will, he will defeat you for the rest of your life over that sin. So we have to be able to speak, but if we're going to speak, we have to know what to say. So go to Revelation chapter 12. Let's think about what we should say. When the devil condemns us and he accuses us and he beats us up, We've all experienced this, and probably we do experience this even now, anytime we sin. Revelation chapter 12, and look in the middle of verse number 10, because in that 10th verse, we get a very insightful description of who the devil is. Notice the phrase, the accuser of our brethren. Say that with me. The accuser of our brethren. That's who the devil is. He's the accuser. And so every time you sin, the devil will accuse you and condemn you, and he'll, and he'll go to God and say, God, look what John just did. Look what John just said. Look how John just acted. He's accusing us to God. He's accusing us to ourselves. And that's what he's always done with the children of God. But in verse number 11, we read about a group of Christians who figured out how to defeat the devil when he accused them and how to overcome the devil. And here's what it says in verse 11. They overcame him... By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And so in verse 10, he is described as the accuser of the brethren. In verse 11, it says, but yes, these Christians here overcame the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, what is the blood of the Lamb? Well, clearly, that is a reference to the fact that when Jesus Christ died on that cross and shed His blood, that in His blood there is forgiveness for every sin that you've ever committed, that I've ever committed, that anybody in the history of the world has ever or will ever commit. So we overcome the devil by stopping and thinking, now wait a second, what I did was, was bad. What I did was wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. I've asked God to forgive me, but I still feel condemned. I have to remember, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from that sin. And you say that, and you believe that, and then you begin to speak that. Because notice it says, they overcame the devil not only by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of their testimony. What was the word of their testimony? Their word of their testimony was the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they said with their mouths... That what Jesus Christ had accomplished on that cross was more than sufficient to pay for their sins. And we have to do the same thing. And so when the devil comes at you and says, you dirty, rotten scoundrel, look at what you did. Look at how you acted. Look at the way you behaved. Look at how you treated her. Look at how you responded to him. Look at what you have done. You have to be able to say in response to that, yes, what I did was wrong. I wish I could go back and undo that conversation or redo that situation, but I can't do it. But listen, devil, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all sin. You say that to the devil. And he keeps coming back and you just keep saying it. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. I've been washed in the blood. I've been cleansed by the blood. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Here's what the devil eventually will figure out. He will figure out that the more he condemns you, 
the more you talk about the blood. And so his condemnation, instead of driving you away from God, is actually drawing you closer to God because every time he condemns you, you're just saying, you know what, devil, you're half right. See, every time the devil comes at you, he'll be half right. If he were 100% wrong, we would never listen to him. There's, there's got to be a little bit of truth in the lie to make the lie fly. And so it's, he just doesn't tell us the whole truth. He comes and says what you did was wrong. It, it, he's right. What we did was wrong. But when we say, yes, it was wrong, but the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. God has cast my sins behind his back. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed those sins from me. He's blotted my sins out from his book. You start quoting all those verses, God will not even remember my sins. You start saying all that to the devil, and that's how you have victory. So the first play in the devil's playbook is temptation, and the right response is to run away. The second play in the devil's playbook is condemnation. And what is the right response? To speak. It's the blood of the Lamb, and it's our word, our confession, our dependence, our declaration that we are trusting the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive us of all sins. If you're thankful for Christ's blood, say amen. I know I I am. Now, the third play in the devil's playbook, play one, temptation. Play two, condemnation. Play three, intimidation. Intimidation. Again, the verse we begin with tonight. He goes about like a roaring lion. The thought of a lion is intimidating to me. The thought of a roaring lion, uncaged, on the loose, unchained. Man, that would scare anybody. Well, that's what the devil is like. And his main goal is to intimidate you and to make you very much afraid. That you would fear a disaster. You would fear getting some disease. You would fear running out of money. You would fear losing your job. I know some people who are married, have wonderful marriages, have been married 30, 40, or more years, and their greatest fear is that their spouse will die. Well, if you're married, the last thing you want to happen is for your spouse to die. Because then you think, well, without them, first of all, my spouse would be gone. I would be, I would be heartbroken. It would be terrible. And then, you know, all the other ramifications of that. But what I'm saying is the devil can even come to people who are married, happily married, and put thoughts in their minds Well, I bet your spouse will die before you do, and then you're going to be alone. He's the intimidator. Or one of those other things I said about your health or about your finances or about something. So what is the right response when the devil tries to intimidate us? Well, go to to 2 Timothy chapter number 1. 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 7. Let me show you the verse, and I'll tell you the right response. 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 7. The Bible says this. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fearful thoughts are not from God. Thinking you're going to get sick, somebody's going to die, you're going to die, you're going to run out of money, your kids are going to get all messed up, you know, all that, none of that is from God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so when a person has a, notice it doesn't, it says a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear is bondage. You're just always worried about when the next shoe is going to fall and all these terrible things are going to happen. And when, you, when you're like that, you have no power. You don't operate with love because fear and, and love are the opposite of each other. And you don't have a sound mind. You're not thinking rationally, but you're paralyzed with fear. And so the right response to intimidation, 
Now write this down, one word, stand. You stand. You see what the devil wants, <laughs> the devil wants to flip all this around and say, hey, when you get tempted, stand, hang in there, think about the sin. No, that's when you run away. And the devil says, hey, when you get intimidated, you get a little bit afraid, run away. God says, no, that's when you stand. Just because you're afraid, you don't run away. Good night. If, if, if we ran away every time we got nervous or every time we even felt fear, we wouldn't do much of anything. There are some days I wouldn't even leave my house. I can remember when my dad first became the pastor of this church and we were at the old location. I was away at Baylor and he would from time to time ask me to come down here to preach. And uh, he, back in those days, he was traveling around to different churches preaching a lot of stuff, and he just finally quit doing most all that and so he could focus here. But when he would be gone on a Sunday night, he would say, John, can you come preach this Sunday night? And I didn't know any of you. I didn't know anybody here. I just knew we were in a, in a, in a church where it was a great church, but I didn't know anybody. And I remember how nervous I was. And I remember I used to sit down there kind of where I sit now in the other building before the sermon, and I would be standing there while the music song service was going on. And this thought would run through my mind. You can't get out of this room till you get up there and talk for 30 minutes. And that was the most intimidating thing. And sometimes now I'll have that thought, not necessarily like that. Some of y'all are thinking it's more than 30 minutes. <laughs> but sometimes I have the thought run through my mind. I'll do, we'll all be singing and I'll be thinking, oh my gosh, oh my goodness. In a few minutes I'm going to be up there looking at all those people in the face. They're going to be looking at me. And they're going to expect me to have something worth listening to. And sometimes I feel a little fear. But when I feel that, I don't just run out the door. I say, God, help me. Or sometimes I feel, Lord, I don't think I'm ready. Help me, give me something. Give me, even if I am ready, God, help it. To be. What I'm saying is you can't run away every time you get afraid. All of us feel fear from time to time. We all know what it's like to have those negative emotions. Now, in the New Testament, isn't it interesting? Most every time Jesus would walk upon a group of people, Jesus would say, fear not. Like if I walk up, see a group of people that my friends, I'll say, hey, how y'all doing? How's it going? How you been? You say the same thing to me. When Jesus walked up, first thing he said was, don't be afraid. Fear not. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because he knew they were afraid. How many times in the Bible do we read that? Old Testament and New Testament. Fear not, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, fear not, don't be afraid. Sometimes we read those verses and we think, man, I've got so far to go in my Christian life because sometimes I am afraid, and I know I'm not supposed to be afraid. Let me say something here tonight that might help us all on that. that the, the word in the Bible for fear, the Greek word is phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, phobos, from which we get our word phobia means fear, claustrophobia, you're afraid of tight spaces. I have a little bit of that sometimes. And, uh, but it, phobia means fear. Now, the original meaning of the word fear, phobos, was flight, flight. And so when Jesus would walk up to a group of people who were afraid and say to them, don't be afraid. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, hey, I know the situation you're facing. I understand how it makes you feel. 
but don't run away. Don't flight. Don't leave. Jesus, when he said, don't be afraid, he was not saying, don't feel fearful. Because Jesus knew that sometimes we just feel fearful. He wasn't saying that. He was saying something much more profound than that. He was saying, don't let those feelings of fear cause you to run away and not do what you know you ought to do. He wasn't saying don't feel fear. He was saying don't, don't, don't be controlled. Don't let that control how you live your life. I've heard, I'm thinking of one wide receiver. He's in the Hall of Fame now. And he tells a story about how when he was playing football and he would be called on to run those routes right across the middle. This is one of the toughest wide receivers in the history of the NFL. And he said when he was being called to run on those routes right across the middle, that he was completely scared to death. Because you know the thing about football, you know that when that wide receiver is running across the middle and he's looking at that quarterback and that quarterback's throwing him the ball, the receiver's looking at the quarterback, he can't look at the strong safety or the free safety or the cornerback or the linebacker who's coming to take his head off. Because he can't, he can't see him. He's looking this way. And so this particular receiver, and I was shocked when I heard him say it, because I thought that man wouldn't be scared of anything. He said, every time we were in the huddle and a quarterback called that play where I had to run across the middle, I was scared to death. He said, but I learned something. He said, I learned that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is running across the middle even when you feel afraid. Let me read you this example. If you want something a little more spiritual than that, you ladies say that, John, that's two football illustrations in one sermon now. That's more than I can handle. Let me close with this tonight. Elizabeth Elliot, one of the wives of the five missionaries murdered by the Indian tribes in Ecuador to whom they were taking the gospel, along with another lady, evangelized the Indian tribes, including the very people who killed their husband and brother. So these, these widows are in India witnessing to the people who killed their family. Elizabeth Elliot tells that at one time her life had been completely controlled by fear. She wasn't free to do what she really wanted to do or what God wanted her to do because fear stopped her when she started to step out. A friend spoke three simple but profound words to her that set her free. Three words. Do it afraid. Do it afraid. And so when the devil comes at us and he intimidates us and we're scared and all this stuff could happen, what do we do? We stand. We stand by the grace of God. We do what we know we're supposed to do, what God expects us to do, and what God has called us to do. And sometimes we do it afraid. Sometimes we preach when we're scared. Sometimes we sing when we're scared. Sometimes we witness when we're scared. Sometimes people come down to the front when they're afraid. Sometimes people get baptized when they're shaking in their, in their boots. But they do it afraid. And so I'm saying to you tonight, whatever you're facing, surgery, medical problems, treatment. You say, John, I know I shouldn't be afraid, but I just feel this feeling of fear and afraid. You know what that means? It means you're a human being and you're perfectly normal. 
But what God would say to you is, don't let those feelings shut you down. Don't let those feelings control you. And God would say to us tonight what somebody said to Elizabeth Elliot a long time ago. Do it afraid. You know what I've learned? When I have feelings of fear about anything, and somehow God enables me to step out and do it afraid, it's just a matter of time till those feelings go away. Because I've learned this. Fear, even those feelings of fear, eventually vanishes in the presence of faith. Amen? Father, take the message tonight and seal it to our hearts. God, we do face an enemy. We wish it wasn't that way. Our lives would be a lot easier. But God, I thank you in your word, the Bible. Not only have you given us his favorite plays, you have shown us what our right response should be. Father, I pray for that person tonight who needs to get saved, who needs to come join the church, who needs to come for his or her baptism. They know they need to do it, and yet they're intimidated, they're afraid. And they keep thinking, if these feelings will ever go away, then I'll do it. God, help them to know the feelings may never go away, but they're going to do it anyway. They're going to do it afraid. Give them the courage tonight to do it afraid. God, help all of us, whether we come forward in this service or not, all of us to live our lives that way, God. Not by what we feel, but by what you have said. You'll never leave us. Your grace is sufficient. So that we can step out even when we have those feelings of fear. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen.